Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 89 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Okay, so I'm Pete Troabas and I am the bass player with Marillion. So great to connect, Pete. Yeah, it's great. And you're in Montreal, I hear. So Montreal is uh, an incredibly progressive rock city. I mean... It I, is, isn't it? Marilla- I know Montreal of old. We've we played Montreal many times and it's such a cool city. But even... even- I love the international, I love the kind of flavor. Flavor is a bit of Europe intermingled. I'm going to guess it's the most European North American city for sure. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And it's it's pretty amazing too, because I know with Marillion, you do those Marillion weekends and Montreal is a big, I mean, it really is a big, important city for that in North America, right? Yes, it is. It is. It's huge. It's huge. Montreal was traditionally, it's a prog, it's a prog town, isn't it? I mean, it really is. That seaboard area. It's just great. And Montreal is one of the big hubs there. So yeah, it, we love we love coming to Montreal. Yeah, I used to publish a rock magazine in the uh, late 80s and 90s. And we had a, a focus on some of the prog stuff as well. And to other people who were not of the province or city, they'd always be like, what's the focus? I'm like, have you? Because my assumption was, well, yeah, everywhere Genesis or Peter Gabriel or Marillion goes, they sell out. And that was not the case. Montreal was unique. Uh, Actually, we do, we do. We tend to these days. Yeah, it's interesting. We're, we're in a very lucky situation that we have amazing fans. But, um, yeah. Let's go back and we'll come forward. Let's do that. Obviously, being Groove, the No Trouble podcast, I want to focus on that instrument that you have been playing for so long. I noted that it's been 40 years this year that you've been a part of Marillion, which is... 40 years. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I think I joined February the 26th. We get in there. We get in there. Right. A few days off, but uh, <laughs> I auditioned. But I—I I mean, that was my first gig. But I actually auditioned around about this time. I went to um, a house. I still live in the town where that audition took place. I live in Aylesbury, and the whole thing was was started in Aylesbury. How do you reflect on forty years? That's a long period of time to do anything, let alone oh, be yeah. in a band. The first few years, we signed to EMI, and that was amazing. And then you realize that that's just the start. Signing a record deal is just the start. And then the hard work happened, and then we had the success, and we were flown around the world a few times. And, you know, but it was just work, work, work. Then, you know, we, we sort of parted company with EMI after, I don't know, about 15 years, I guess. We were signed to EMI as a band. And then we had a few lean years and then we, we spent a bit of time trying to work out how we could work within the music industry and still be a part of it. We, we signed a few indie deals and it didn't really work out that well because as soon as they'd made their money back, the book closes and so, but we're, we're, we're still, you know, this album's only six months old. Come on, we, we've got plans. And they're like, mm, no. No, we probably need another album if you want to do that. And it's like, so then the internet started to take off and we thought, oh, actually, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. 
So we instigated that pre prior on our last our last um, album we did with Castle Communications. We called it Meridian.com. I remember, yeah. And we one of the things we the the the, the record label agreed to us having a gatefold. And having a bonus disc, which people could write in for, there was a reply card that we put in it. And the other thing we did was we asked people to take photographs of themselves to be part of the front cover. And that, that allowed us to start growing a fan base on the internet. There's something really prior to that, everything was just fanzines and mail order and it was an expensive business posting stuff out and receiving post that was the start of it all really it's really fascinating to me too because when i think about what's happening with marillion it reminds me a lot of iron maiden actually this ebb and flow of a career that i had been following since the 80s yeah and it seems like something happened in the world that doesn't work for every band, but is working for many bands. Yeah. This weird thing where internet comes in, the bands are more mature, mature enough to understand we can maybe grab this and make a run at something. But at the same time, the unique thing is there's something happening in the air. They'll call it the zeitgeist. This is one of my favorite words. There you go. Around this crazy reconnection to progressive or, or more, more alternative, you know, metal stuff that even, you know, I jokingly say I would have gotten slammed into the lockers in school when I was in high school, if I liked Marillion. And now we're, we're walking around proudly with those t-shirts and it's like the coolest thing. There's like a Comic-Con culture in there. There's something, a lot of things had to happen to make this work. A bit of a, there is a bit of that thing going on and it's great. The beauty of being able to connect through the internet or however you in, you connect these days, is that you can connect with everyone around the world rather than like, if there's only, if, if no one in your town liked Meridian, then you were the odd one out these right. days. No one's the odd one out, you know? Yeah. That's so cool. You're right. We It came along at a right time for us. Having a bit of a history, having a bit of that catalog and a bit of that, oh yeah, I remember them. Oh, that's what they're doing now thing. And now, of course, with the history we have now, there's a whole wealth of music and people are still discovering us and exploring it. And it's, that's great. That's amazing. Let's go back and talk a little bit about when you first discovered the bass. What I do know are things like this, that originally really it was a piano, that you were around seven years old when there was a guitar. You know, bass came a little bit later because your buddy was also a guitar player and yeah, yeah, bass. Yeah, my, be I, my best friend, Robin, actually, who's just about to go, he's going on tour with Howard Jones. He's still a guitarist. Oh, great. We both, yeah, we both made it. We were, <laughs> we wanted to, we wanted to make it in our high school band, but we didn't. <laughs> and then we both kind of had to go our separate ways, but we still, we both became professional musicians. Amazing. That Howard Jones live across America, the acoustic album that he did. Yeah. That completely, I think it completely changed his career. I mean, he was really known for the big hair 80s, yeah, that's big right. shoulder pads, but that album established that those songs were really something. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That band, it's, it's so cool because you, you've got my mate Robin on guitar and you've got Nick Beggs as well from Kajagoogoo fame, but all right. 
He pl- he's played with Steve Wilson and Steve Hackett. He's been a dipping in and out of all kinds of stuff, and he's he's a serious musician. So he plays at stick as well. Amazing. Oh, this thing's great. So your friend convinces you or you decide because he plays better that you're going to play the bass. I know your dad was a big fan of jazz. How do yeah. you breach the conversation of, I got to go buy a bass? Because you're not of age where it's like you have this disposable income and a job and you're going to play bass. You're a kid. <laughs> I already had an electric guitar and I'd already traded that up for a slightly better one. I can't remember what the first one was called, but the second one was a Vox. It was a Vox kind of strapped copy, and I wish I'd kept it because it would be worth a fortune now. It was like a 1957 Vox or something. And it's like, oh, I'll get rid of that and I'll buy a bass because that's what I need. So I bought this bass. Originally, because we were just a garage band, we were like 14, 15 years old, and we were learning our trade, learning how to play other people's songs. So we were listening to Borkwind and stuff, and it's like, oh, yeah. And I'd been a huge fan of McCartney. And with my dad's big band jazz that I'd listen, I, I, I understood walking bass and McCartney was, oh, that's cool. And so I started off just playing the bass on the, on, on the last two, turn all the treble off on my guitar and started playing bass runs on my guitar. And then eventually I bought a bass and realized I needed a bass amp then. And it's just, you know what it's like when you're a music, it's never ending. Strings, picks, valves, pre-amplifier. But back then, it's always needed money. But but back then, it it wasn't like it was everywhere, the electric bass. They weren't so easy to find back then. When was that? That was the early 70s. Oh, so it was better then. Okay, so it was a bit later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was about 74, 75 when I first bought a bass. When did you? would have been. Now, wait a minute. I was a bit younger, wasn't I? I know. It would have been 71, 72. When did you fall in love with it? Did you know right away? Yes, I guess I just thought, you know what? This is a cool instrument because I realized early on that I could move around and change what's going on melodically. With the piano, we had a piano in the house. Both myself and, 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 and my friend, Robin, were pretty good at understanding the, the, the basics of music. We both played clarinet as well. And he had a saxophone, I had a clarinet. So we both understood music quite well. It's just that we wanted to be in the band. You know, I've wanted to be in the band since I saw the Beatles at Shea Stadium when I was like six years old. Right. It's like, that looks like fun. I want to do that. Have you had a chance to watch either the Rick Rubin documentary or the famed Jackson one? Have you, have you spent time with those? No. You haven't seen either of those Beatles, the Beatle documentary on, on Disney Plus with Peter Jackson? Oh, what, the, um, the, the Let It Be? Yeah. No, oh, not, yeah, no, not, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Is it, no, it's not called Let It Be. What's it, is that what it's called? No, it's Get Back. Get Back. Get Back, Get Back, yeah. Get Back. Yeah, they are incredible, aren't they? I saw the original in the cinema and it was very dark and the whole premise was the band weren't getting up and they were clearly going to split up. Right. And then you see them on a daily basis, they'd be messing around and having fun, you know, goofing around. And John playing the, the six-string bass. A lot. Yeah, uh, yeah, more, more than my- you know, sometimes because McCartney was like, oh yeah, I've got this song on piano or I've got this, I've got this little thing on guitar, you know, he was the mover of that. In the documentary, 321 McCartney, there's some great stuff in there also where they're breaking down the yeah. bass tracks. Yes, I have seen that. Sorry, I saw yeah. that as well. I mean, there was some stuff in there where 
I didn't even think that was a bass. It sounded like another instrument. It was so interesting to watch them break down just the bass, which again, how often do people like you and I who love the instrument have a documentary where they, you know, usually the bass is like, whatever, it's somewhere in the background, but here they brought it out and it was surprising. It is cool. It's so amazing to see. I was a huge fan. I had all the, I've still got all the albums on mono, mono versions of, of the albums I originally bought or my parents originally bought for me. Right. And I was mad about music. And luckily my dad was mad about music, just a different kind. But he was kind of just, you know, he understood, you know, what I was going through. It's like, this is a passion. And so he was happy to help feed that. Your parents are listening to things like Oscar Peterson, which again, had tip to yeah, Montreal, yeah, which is great. All sorts of things. I mean, Matt Monroe. And I remember we, we used to watch stuff like the Andy Williams show with the Osmonds on for the sure. first time the Osmonds were ever on television. I like Soul Train when that came over on telly occasionally. My sister was four years older than me as well. So like I got introduced to popular culture and modern music earlier than a lot of my kind of peers because she was listening to stuff and of course girls usually have boyfriends that are a couple of years older than them so right. you're getting introduced to even older stuff as well the underground and all of that kind of stuff and that can you tell me a bit about where progressive music comes from because now when you talk about that i get it in terms of that music there was probably some psychedelic stuff happening then some Led Zeppelin type heavier rock happening, but something happens, whether it's early Genesis or others, or yes, that really bring it. So what was happening in your world? You're like, well, this is the path. There was a few things that happened all at the same time, really. Strangely enough, one of the bands that isn't mentioned a lot, but really was quite an influence, I think, was the Moody Blues. Okay. The Moody Blues had... And Procol Harum as well. Procol Harum's first album and the Moody Blues, they had like, they had Mellotrons and stuff because I think it was on the Court of the Crimson King, they borrowed a Mellotron off Moody Blues mm. to get the string sounds for one of the tracks. There was psychedelic music. There was a lot of odd music going on. For sure. And, um, some of it great, some of it not so great. People like Captain Beefheart sure. as well. Lots of different amalgamations. And there was a time when anything anything went. And record companies would sign anything because they had no idea what the kids were listening to mm. or taking. So, like, the bosses at the record companies just got young kids in and said, well, you know what's going on out there. You signed some bands. So they did. They signed whatever they thought was cool. And in amongst all of that, there came a few little patterns of things, kind of folk got developed. There was an interesting path because folk music got rediscovered in the very early sixties because there was an, a composer who went out in search of old English folk tunes because there were, there didn't seem to be any written down. So he wanted to notate them. And he wrote a book about all these folk tunes. And there was a kind of a, a broadcast, a BBC broadcast about all this folk. And that instigated a lot of bands like Quintessence and who else? 
Fairport Convention and people like that. So there was a folk thing going on. And Jethro Tull was kind of went out of folk and got into a little bit of folky, jazzy kind of stuff. There was also a crossover with some of the later bebop stuff. There was a composer in England called Johnny Dankworth, who was really writing modern jazz in the mid-60s that if it had been played by Yes, would sound like progressive music. It was just played with jazz instruments instead. You know, Jean-Luc Ponty and people like that. There was a whole kind of, lots of slightly different things going on, but all moving in the same kind of direction. How much was the fact that things were becoming more and more electric or more and more complex in a studio in terms of technology, how much was that playing into what became things like Marillion? Yeah. One of the things you find out as well from the Get Back documentary is how in, they were instigators of developing studio techniques. The flanger was born out of John Lennon uh, asking somebody to find a way to make a, make his guitar sound different. Right. And double tracking, all of those kind of techniques where they got fed up of having to double sing everything. They wanted somebody to just, and of course, the, the bit, you know, the um, Abbey Road, EMI, had all these technicians, like the BBC did as well. It was funny, though. would just make stuff. They just designed stuff. It, it was funny, though, too, to watch George Martin seem a bit out of element and yeah. how they were like, moving speakers or asking for, and they were actually, there were moments where they're frustrated, like they didn't have access to certain technology. And you're like, this is the Beatles. How is this even possible? And you really realize the limitations yeah. of the time. Yeah, they've dealt, yeah, massively, massively. It's amazing. And I remember, I mean, even when we were recording in the 80s, I remember moving from 24 track to 48 track. Yeah. It was an impossible thing. You, it, and the poor old, you, you'd finish a session. If Sometimes you'd finish a session at one in the morning or two in the morning because the producer wanted to get to a particular point in the recording process because you were running out of time, usually. And then the poor old engineer and the tape op would have to be in at 10 o'clock the next morning to line up the tape heads. They had to physically make yeah. sure that all of the tape heads were in line so that there was no phasing or flanging or anything. Crazy. In the early 80s, you joined the band in 1982. We talked about 40 years. I know many people have, if they're fans of the band like I am, have anchors of of Marillion. And for me, fortuitous for when I was just genetically born in the lottery, you know, 1985 hits and this album Misplaced Childhood comes along and Kaylee and I'm living, like we said, in Montreal where there's already been a push in terms of the Genesis's and Peter Gabriel's and yes, you might as well have had a line drive hit right to my chest when that rush is happening already here for someone like me. And that album just changes the world. And you're sitting there in 19, probably having joined the band a couple years earlier. Yeah. And suddenly you're on a rocket ship. You're not on a tour bus. I remember the single going up the charts and we were on tour at the time. And every Wednesday we'd get the midweek chart position and they'd say, what? What, what's it doing? And they'd say, oh, it's, it's doing really, really well this week. Oh, well, it'll dip before the weekend. You know, we got them a bit blasé about it. And every Wednesday and every like Sunday when the charts were actually out, 
There'd be like somebody had come in with a bottles of champagne and like, oh, you're, you're, you're now your number, you know, because it started out at like your number 40 odd and then you're in the top 40. And then it's like, now guys, you're in the top 30 and then you're in the 20s and then you're going up in the 16s and stuff. And it's like, you're in the top 10. It's like, mm. and then eventually we just kept going the chance. And it's like, this is unbelievable. But then I came off tour the week after. The week after all of that, I think, or two or three weeks after, I came back off tour and I was shopping in my local supermarket. So like nothing had changed. It's like, it was like, the day, you know, I've dreamt my whole life about signing a record deal. And the day I signed it, I signed a piece of paper, walked out and got the train home. It's like, well, this is supposed to feel better than this. <laughs> I don't want, and, and the same thing, I'm walking around my local supermarket thinking, I've had a hit in this, I've had a massive hit in the charts and it surely something's supposed to have happened, you know, but yeah, no, it doesn't. Life goes on. Does it, but does at one point it has to hit you? Well, obviously, no. Okay. Uh, what, what does happen, of course, is that the powers that be, you suddenly meet people you didn't even know existed in the record company structure. Somebody will fly in from America to shake your hand. And then you get into, we got introduced to somebody from the parent company. We didn't even know he and I was owned by another company, but some guy from, I think it was Thorne, which was the parent company of EMI at the time, flew in just to thank us. Oh. And that basically means we'd made them a ton of money and they'd graciously let us pay off our advance. <laughs> At the time, Fish was the lead singer for those who don't know or know their history. And now Steve yeah. Hogarth and again, two phenomenal performers and artists and creative people. Really? Well, aren't we lucky to have had both, actually? Yeah, it's really staggering to think about. When Fish is interviewed, I haven't had a chance to interview him since you know, a long time. There was almost this sentiment of not wanting it to be this well, this popular, this famous. There was something happening in the band of almost fighting or resisting what was being pulled or offered? It was. We weren't. We we didn't sit comfortably with fame and fortune. We didn't feel. Well, we didn't want to be. Ultimately, what uh, a record company really want is a hit machine. That's really what they want. And if that means having two singles and an album and a, and a, and a good selling album, then you know at the time it was considered that singles sold albums and we were a rock band so our albums would sell themselves but you needed the advertisement of the singles and so they were conscious of that and we were like well we don't want to be seen as a single band you know so we were always fighting that we felt we were being marketed in a rock way we were being marketed to the Kerrang heavy rock kind sure. of iron maiden type audiences because we were on that side of the label and we had a logo and we, they wanted our covers to have a style and well, we're just being sold in the same way. We're being marketed here. How do you reflect on it now? Because you look back and it, putting aside the marketing, if you think about bands like Rush, if you think about bands like Yes, if you think about bands like Iron Maiden, what you're really seeing is bands that weren't just churning out hits. They had the ups and downs, but they built legacy. They built catalog. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And, and, well, all of those bands had the music to back it up, didn't they? But so did you. That's what and, I'm curious about. And the music, well, exactly. And the musicianship as well. People aren't stupid. And if people, if people are being sold something, they know whether it's fake or whether it's real. 
ultimately. You can advertise as much as you like, and you can wrap things up to be as cool or as hip or as, or as now or as, you know, heavy rock or as whatever as you want. But if it's not the real thing, people know. They've seen through it, particularly the, the, the hardcore music fans. They were like, they, you know, so like with a band like Iron Maiden, you can sense it's the real deal. And I think with Meridian, people could sense that it was the real deal. We meant, we cared about what we were doing and we cared about what we were, how we were, you know, doing it. Now, it's- we, you know, we had the musicianship. We grew as musicians and as writers, as everybody does. It's interesting to me that that work ethic, that creativity in terms of really creating music that matters, it never waned. It didn't wane when Fish left. It didn't no. wane over the years. One of the bands that I, I point to when people talk about Legacy is Deep Purple. Some of their recent albums, they're not trying to be the 60s or 70s. They're writing them as 60, 70-year-old people who still love to make music. And it feels to me, when I hear things like your 20th studio album that's just coming out now, yeah. that you are putting that same energy in. Yeah which is very unique and different. We care about what we're doing, like I said. And we've written a lot of music, like you say. We've written 20 albums, and there's a whole catalogue of, of songs. We don't need... Our fans really want new music. They love it when they think there's new music on the horizon. But it's not something that we feel pressured to do. And we don't have a record company breathing down on eggs. The reason why there was a six-year wait, I think, was because we weren't comfortable about putting our mindset on, we've got to write another album. So what we did was we messed around with it. We messed around when we were doing other things like the Strings album or when we were going on tour, because we toured with the Strings album. We, talk, we did festivals as well. Every time we were in the studio doing something else, we'd spend some time jamming, just goofing around, just having fun with it, not thinking... We've got to write some music here because we need a new album. And eventually we got to a stage with my car producer, Mike Hunter, who is the sixth member of the band, in all, in all honesty, he really is. He catalogues everything that we do and he would put these, chop these things up. I'd put little notes on anything that he thought there was any musical worth in. It'd be like, guitar descend, six eight, you know. <laughs> Quiet piano, nice vocal, or whatever. So we'd get a basic idea of what we were going to be listening to. And we ended up with folders and folders of ideas. And we thought, you know what? There's some worth in some of these. That we all naturally, the best ideas filtered to the top of that pile. And we all made our own. We had this kind of cloud-based server that we were using. So we all had our own kind of top 100 ideas. <laughs> and when we felt that we had enough strong ideas, where it, we could think about going back in a studio and, and, and working on them and creating something. That's what we did. Talk to me a little bit about Transatlantic. I mean, again, you are a career Marillion person. When people ask yeah. you, where is your energy? You always say 100% plus is Marillion and yeah. you'll break through some of, you know, Kino and other opportunities yeah. that you've taken on yeah, when, when the timing's right really so, um it got a bit messed up this time round, though because of covid yeah it sounds like it <laughs> because we had some downtime 
for about the last three years, Transatlantic, you know, annually, the annual conversation has been, are we going to do another album? And uh, does anybody have any time in their calendars? Because like Mike is a stupid busy guy and Neil's pretty busy with all his bands as well. And for, well, for, you know, for people who don't know, we got Mike Portnoy on drums. We've yeah. got Neil, Neil Morse from Deep Purple. Colors with yeah. Steve Morse from Deep, Deep Purple. Purple. Yeah. And, um, and Mike Portnoy on drums. And uh, the other member of Transatlantic is Rowena Stolt from the Flower Kings. Great band. The Sea Within. He's been, he, he played in a few, on a few Tangent albums. He's a great co-writer, actually. And such an inspirational guitar player. It's a very cool band and it's very prog. We make no bones about it. We want to sound like everyone's favorite prog bands. It's faster, more aggressive, and more notes than you typically will do in a Marillion gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's a show band. <laughs> yeah. It's like the prog version of The Who. Everyone solos all at the same time. It's a very cool thing. It's very melodic as well. We all have a few things in common. We all love the Beatles. We all love Yes and Genesis and classic progressive rock. And we just want to make music that we would like to listen to. And so we went off to Sweden in 2019. Like I said, I, I had some, we all had some downtime. So I said, let's, let's aim for 20, you know, middle to the uh, later 28, 19. So in September, we headed off to Sweden with the idea of recording an album. We'd all sent round ideas that we'd written, which we always do. And we'd kind of earmark the ideas we'd all like to work on. And what happened was that we spent all of that time arranging an album. And then the plan was to go back home. Everybody would record remotely. And in 2020, we'd release it and go on tour at some point. But of course, that didn't happen because of the pandemic. So we spent 2020 messing around with it and rearranging it. And I'd, I'd constantly said, this is too long. We should cut this. And after about six months of messing around with it, Neil came back and said, guys, I've been thinking about this and I think it's too long as well. This is what I propose we do. And he had quite a radical idea about editing it and moving sections around. One or two of the songs featured a bit sooner. And one of, one of my themes only, only ended up being right at the end. And it, was, it ended up being a big theme that was never any part of anything else. So he moved it further back so that it made sense to have it you know, reoccurring. We like reoccurring themes in Transatlantic. Yeah. Um, and then we couldn't decide because of the, the problem with having four members of a band is that if two people like one thing and two people like the other, then what do you do? You're not going to fall out about it. So Mike said, look, let's not even bother about that. Let's just do both. And we were like, can we do that? Are we allowed to do that? He said, well, sure we are. We don't have to do anything, you know, <laughs> in a typical Mike fashion. So we... We discussed that with the record company. He said, well, it's got to be sufficiently different enough. But it was. There was some new music written. We wrote, rewrote quite a lot of lyrics so that this, and had different melodies as well so that both versions of the album are sufficiently different. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about it. Yeah, but this... I'll tell them anyway. It's fun to hear. 
Yeah, sure. So that's what we did. And then it's like, well, this is great. I wanted to work on a shorter album and now I've got two bloody albums to work on. So yeah, and then we started to come out of lockdown in the UK. So then it was like, we're all back in the studio with Marillion. So I quickly finished off what I was doing with Transatlantic and put it to bed. And now I've got both bands going on tour. So what do you do? How do you do this? And, uh, well, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing a Polish convention, a convention in Poland with Marillion. Um, and the day after that convention, so Sunday night is the last show with Marillion. Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, all completely different music. So that's six hours of music <laughs> plus to learn. And then I, then I drive about three in the morning, I drive to Warsaw and fly to America to rehearse with Transatlantic for two shows. So that Transatlantic shows are notoriously long. So that's another six hours of music to learn. So I'm busy at the moment learning a lot of music. How are you feeling health-wise? How are you feeling about the fact that you're not... (laughs) Well, I mean, again, like you're heading towards your mid-60s. You're working very, very hard. How do you feel about how you think about Music, we talked a little bit about the bass, but you're a multi-instrumentalist. You love to write, you love to create, you like the studio, you clearly like live. Yeah. How do you deal with all this? I sometimes think, you know, well, I need a holiday. But I love music. I mean, music is my life, you know. I mean, Marillion is my life. Transatlantic is a very cool thing to do. I'm very lucky to be in Transatlantic. I'll tell you a funny story about Transatlantic. So Mike approached me through email. He was in, years ago, Dream Theatre did a concert in London where they wanted to play some songs by people who had inspired them to form the band. And one of the songs was a song called Easter by, from Marillion. And so Steve Hogarth and Steve Rothery went along to perform with them. And while they were discussing through via email, whether that track could be released and how that could work and uh, was everybody okay with that version? Did anything need to be done to it so it could be released? At the bottom of one of the emails, Mike said, oh, by the way, could you ask Pete if he wants to be part of a, a little thing? I'm getting a project together and I'd like Pete to be the bass player. So Steve Hogarth came in with this email. He said, oh, by the way, I've, I've been asked by Mike if you would like to join the project. I said, I don't know. What do you guys think? And they all said, yeah, why don't you? So I said, yes. And then I heard some of the, I, I heard all the demos that Neil and Royner sent. And Neil had, Neil had put on his demo. He said, sorry about the bass play. I'm not as proficient as you. <laughs> and, he, and, and, it, and there was one bit where he played a bass solo, and I was thinking, this dude's playing. <laughs> and I'm not really a riffer, you know. I'm just more of a melodic guy. Yeah. I like to just go about and do my thing. So I phoned Mike up. I said, Mike, I think I might not be the right person for this. He said, sure you are. He said, what I want is what you do. He said, just bring what you do to it. It'll be great. So... So we had time booked. Well, we didn't have time booked, but we'd kind of earmarked when we would get together. And then I was hit by a car and broke my leg. And I was in hospital for about, I don't know, two or three months. 
And I, th- I was lying in bed. I was lying in bed on my 40th birthday. I was lying in bed thinking, well, that's the end of that then. <laughs> and they waited. They decided that they'd wait until I'd recovered. So I flew to America to record the Simpty album. Uh, only knowing Mike, I flew to America with crutches. My mum took me. To, I couldn't drive. So my, my wife was at work. So my mum drove me to the airport. I had two guitars. I had a suitcase. I was on crutches with a legging plaster trying to get through the airport, <laughs> flying to America. And, um, yeah, that's how that's all started. It's an amazing way. We were recording the first album. We were in this little studio upstate New York and to get from the live room to the console room where you had to listen back to everything, there was a slope. Every time we do something, we do like 15 minutes of music. Okay. Let's listen to that. I'd have to get me crutches, put the bass down, get me crutches. Trying to get up this, I was sweating by the time I got back into the studio to listen to it. It was tough, but it was good fun, you know. It's amazing. What What are the plans now? Marillion won't really tour, correct? It's more dates here, dates there. Or how does How does Marillion approach it? Now? Well, we do do tours. No, we do okay. do tours. We don't. We don't often tour America or Canada. It's that's true, but we tour quite a lot in Europe. Okay. Or we did. Yeah, of course. Britain has left Europe, so right. we're, work on, we're working on that. No, we've actually got a, a European tour book later in the year. It just basically means you cost more money. Right. But, but there are things like Marillion Weekend. There are things like... Uh, we, we are famous for doing the weekends around the world. And the Cruise to the Edge. We do Cruise to the Edge as well. One of the great things about the weekends we do is that because of the way they're structured and because of the... It's a package that we're selling to the fans. It's a three or four day package because quite often we'll lease a place. We lease a center parks in Holland for our big conventions in Port Zealand, it's called. And it's a center park in Port Zealand. And a lot of the fans, because they had to travel on the Friday, like we get there two or three days before to set up all the production. Right. And they travel in and a lot of them were said, is it possible for us to come in a day earlier? Because we don't feel up to standing around watching a Meridian concert because we've just flown for ages and we had to finish work early and stuff. So that's a four day event now because, and the night before there'll be like a disco or like a rock disco or acoustic set. <laughs> we'll do something goofy and they have quizzes and stuff. And we always play the winners, the winners of all of the quizzes get to quiz against us. It's really useless. We don't know any facts about ourselves. You would think, having lived through yeah, we'd know what we're talking about. No, we don't. We it's, always look. it's like a bad Star Trek convention, right? Where it's like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's cool. It's good fun. That's great. Well, Pete, I can't thank you enough for your time. I know that you, you're so busy with Marillion, so busy with Transatlantic. There's the tour. There is the 20th album, An Hour Before Dark, and some of the greatest music is on this. It's such a joy to listen to. I just can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you for your time as well. Pleasure talking to you, man. Mm.